Well, thank you so much, worship team, and thank you again for being with us this morning. And if you're listening online later, thank you for doing that and listening online with us uh, later on. Um, I remember my first professional job, and I call it professional, I guess, because it felt like I had to dress up more for it than my other jobs. And I had to roll out of bed and uh, wear a tie in the mornings, and I worked for an organization after college that gave me that first feel of... I'm no longer studying for a future, but I'm actually now doing something related to what I had been planning on doing. And I remember the excitement I had going into that, not necessarily of wearing a tie all the time, although that was something, um, but it was this feeling of, um, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm investing my life now into the thing that I had at least been uh, preparing for, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this, and I was really loving the organization that I worked with. And I walked into this job with these fairly high expectations, knowing who was in charge in the organization and you know what it was about and what it did. And I just was generally enthused by this excitement of man, first like quote unquote real job that you have. Okay. Now over time, now here's what I came to realize over time: that in every department in the organization I was working with, in every department, there were sinners. In every department. There was personal and personnel issues throughout the organization. And then I realized, like, I'm one of those. I'm one of those sinners too. And I don't know if you ever had this experience, but it was my first time having this experience of realizing I'm walking into this organization, walking into this job, thinking that it's public presence, it's public stage life, if you will, is really what it's going to be like across the board. Like every time that we need to meet a deadline, everyone is going to be smiling and happy. You know, and, and no one is ever going to send an email that's confusing, and there's never going to be any difficulty because everything looks great from the outside. And over time, I begin to have that first time, that first experience of, wait a minute, things are not as they said that they were. And I remember kind of that, whoa, that gap forming, that space forming in my own life. If you've ever had that experience, if you've ever had that experience of, of, of that reality, then you know what I'm talking about. That there comes a time when you realize what people put on stage is not the same as what's going on behind the stage, right? Like what is going on on stage is everything is generally happy and good, but behind the stage, in order to make things look as good as they do in any organization or in any marriage, right? Or in any business or in any roommate relationship, in any classmate relationship in any teammate relationship the things that go on on stage are great but behind the scenes there are often people who are on stage crew yelling at each other to make sure that they line up and pull the string in time so that the curtain comes out right like there's always stuff going on behind the scenes that is just a part of of life now in in all of that the reason i bring that up is that in any time that we're working with people like this and the longer we work with people the longer we work with people, not only, do the, not only do we get to know them more, but also the more we, quote-unquote, have on them. The longer you've been in a marriage, the more history you have together. The more longer you've been in a family, the more you've seen that weird uncle continue to do the weird things, right? The longer you've been in an organization, the longer you've seen your boss do what he does or your employee friends do what they do, we tend to get more on each other over time. That just is the way it works. And over time, if we're not careful, if we're not careful, it is easy, I'm going to put it this way for us this morning, it is easy to be careless with the closest. It's easy to be the most careless 
with the people who are the closest to us. And I don't know if you ever thought about it in these words or terms before, but you probably experienced it, that it's easy to be careless with our family or in-laws or the boss who always or the church member who never or my brother who always or my roommate who doesn't do the dishes ever it's easy to be careless with the closest it's easy to extend less grace to my family than it is to someone who's not a family member right we've all seen those plaques in different people's homes when they come in you know friends are welcome and family by appointment right And there's a reason that there's that thread that goes through life is because the people who are closest to us, it's easy to be the most careless with the closest. It just is. It just is the way that it works. And if you have ever had that experience or had that feeling of some distance in a relationship that should be closer than it is or some difficulty processing that, I want to tell you that this morning in this little book of Nehemiah that we're studying, there is a group of people who should be close to one another, who are struggling to figure out how do we deal with a gap and a distance that has been created? Because there are things going on behind the scenes. There are people yelling at each other behind the stage that come out in full play this morning in the book of Nehemiah chapter 5. So if you have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to Old Testament book of Nehemiah. Now, if you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. It's our gift to you. Uh, We'd love to have you take that home with you if you would like uh, and engage that and read that. We believe, again, in the the value and the life and the truth and the joy that's in the scriptures. Um, And we're in a series that we're um, studying this little book of Nehemiah. And if you're with us last week, we actually finished chapter two. I don't know if anyone will remember that unless I just told you right now. We're finishing chapter 2, and then I am skipping chapters 3 and 4, not because they're not important, but because I want to continue our story in a timely way for our series. And I want to tell you what's happening in this book. Um, In chapter 3 in the book of Nehemiah, just so you know, the people of Israel who are back in Jerusalem are rebuilding the wall, and they're actually doing the work. Like, Chapter 3 lists name after name after name after name after name after name after name, many of whom we cannot pronounce. And by the way, Nehemiah chapter 3, a great resource for baby names if you're in that business, okay? There's interesting things in there. You can look into that yourself. Nehemiah chapter 3, it just lists forever and ever and ever and ever. All these people who are doing real work. And here's why this matters, I think, to me, and I hope it matters to you too. Because these times in the Bible where they list names of people like that and things that they're doing, like these people worked on this gate and these 16 worked on that gate and they worked next to them and shoulder by shoulder with and hand in hand with, it reminds us that these are real things. These are real people. This is going to all be fact-checked. The reason that their names are recorded is because this actually happened. So those are great reminders in chapter 3. They got tons of people. The work is beginning. In chapter 4... The people around uh, Jerusalem are beginning to see the wall rising, and they're afraid of what might happen. And so they begin lobbing accusations at uh, the people who are building. And they say, you know, what right do you have to do this? And, you know, and by the way, your, your wall is so feeble, like just a fox will jump on it and it will fall down. Okay, anyway, that's the best that they had. And the, Nehemiah basically calls the people together and, and says to them this in Nehemiah 4.14. He says this, and I, I stood up and I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, like he gathered them all together because they were hearing the criticism from the outside. He said, don't be afraid of them. 
remember, and this is why we call our series Remember When, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, and your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Like, remember who God is. Remember that he's great and awesome. We're doing this because of who he is. And may that point of remembrance, like remember when you believed that God was awesome. And when you did, you would fight for that. So remember that now. Remember when that was a part of your life. So remember that. And then he put these guys not only to work but he also gave them swords and shields and said now while one brother works the other one is going to be getting his back all right we're going to be ready to fight if we need to but we're on it and we're moving at the end of chapter four things are rolling and it's happening i mean we're in a great spot and then chapter five happens chapter five is where we are this morning because the external opposition to the wall seems to be covered nehemiah has that covered he appealed to the character of god But in chapter 5, all of a sudden, the ugly stuff from backstage presents itself on the front. And we have an internal conflict of significant nature inside the nation of Israel, inside the people who are rebuilding the law. So let's look at that in Nehemiah chapter 5 and verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV, and there it reads this way. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. This is after everything was taken care of, opposition was handled, things were rolling, and now verse 1 happens. Look at what happens again in verse 1. I'm just going to pause it there for a minute. The men and their wives raised a great outcry against their Jewish brothers. This may not seem like a big deal to us, but look at the, the reality that you have both men and their wives raising a great outcry is a big deal. Not only because women's voices typically were not heard and women typically were not mentioned like this in the Old Testament. That alone is strange. The fact that they are mentioned means that the temperature is raised on this issue. Think about it this way. If you have ever come home from work or come home from a family gathering or anything and you have vented to a close friend or a spouse about something bad that happened, let's just say at work, What would it take, how bad would it have to be at work for your spouse to say, you know what, tomorrow morning, I'm going with you. And we are meeting with him and her. I mean, how bad would that have to be? And this is what is happening. This is how bad it is. That the men and their wives raise a great outcry. This is legal language, by the way. You need to know this as this section unfolds through verse 11. This is a a legal terminology, this raising of the outcry against their Jewish brothers. So we are turning it internal. The problem is the people who are their Jewish brothers, and this is legal terminology, meaning that they're not just having a protest. It's not as if they uh, picket and have posters and they just are not going to work until we get this resolved. They are actually, for all intents and purposes, taking their Jewish brothers to court, suing them in our language. It's the easiest way for us to understand it. It's not quite apples to apples, but it's pretty close. They recognize that Nehemiah is the governor of our province. He is here. We have a legal claim that no one is hearing, and we're going to raise an outcry against them. This entire thing is turning inward. It has gotten that bad that the men and their wives are saying, basically, we are bringing you all to court in the middle of rebuilding the wall. It's amazing. What's happening? Look at what's happening in verse 2. Why has it gotten this bad? And some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. That's part of the problem. 
they want to rebuild the wall, but they're spending all their time rebuilding the wall, and they have to go get grain, and they don't have the money to buy the grain, and that is a problem, because you have to eat to work, and you just have to eat to live. They don't have the capacity to buy the grain. And so what was happening is they were getting into a world of hurt. Look at verse 3. Others were saying, this is the first accusation, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. They are giving up, that's the first accusation, they're giving up legal right to them. These people who are raising the outcry realize we no longer have a legal right to live where we do. And it is a dangerous situation, isn't it, when you you lose a legal right to live and exist where you are supposed to be able to live and exist. You are in a very vulnerable position when you have to mortgage your property for something else. And that's what's happening. We have to mortgage our fields to get grain during the famine. So we don't even own where we live anymore. And still others were saying, we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. We've had to borrow the money that we now are going to have to pay back. And what's underneath this, and we'll see it later, is that not only were they borrowing money, but the money that they were borrowing from their Jewish brothers, their Jewish brothers who were rich and had money, were then charging them exorbitant interest on that money because it's supply and demand. It's business, baby. Like, this is the way it needs to happen. And so they don't have their fields anymore that they own. They don't have their homes anymore, and they're paying exorbitant interest. And so what else do you have? If you owe somebody something, and you can no longer mortgage your property, what else do you have to give them as collateral? The answer in this world is your children. That may sound terrible to us, but that's what was happening here. Look at the next verse. Verse 5, although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. This is the only way we can pay back, is by putting our children to work for the debts that we owe. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. We're not talking about forced marriages. But we are, and here's their word and their cry, we are powerless. Why? Because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. They are in a world of hurt. What in the world do they have left and what will change? They have no property, they have no money, and now their families are being subjected to slavery. What's next? Nehemiah rightly reacts, as he does in verse 6. When I heard their outcry and these charges, again, because this is a legal issue, I was very angry. As we all feel that, even as we sit here, like how could the people who are your Jewish brothers do this to you? How can you be this careless with the people who are closest to you? Verse 7. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. And I told them, you are exacting usury or high interest from your own countrymen. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you're selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. Verse 9. So I continued. What you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain. But let the exacting of usury stop. 
important distinction. In other words, gentlemen, ladies, follow up my example, Nehemiah says. We have extra. We have resources. And we're lending them, expecting repayment. We're not giving. We're not enabling. We're lending with the anticipation of a return. But we are not abusing those who are borrowing from us in that process. So follow this example. Don't do what you're doing. Verse 11, and here's his judgment on the case. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest or the usury that you are charging them. The hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. In other words, even the hundredth little part. Like if you pull up to the gas station and the gas is 2.54 and 9 tenths, give them back that 9 tenths. We never pay attention. Give them back that little bit that you think you can still get away with. Give them back everything to the hundredth point. Be as careful in giving back to them as you were careless in taking from them. And then verse 12, their response. And this is amazing because these people, by the way, are the power players. These are the nobles. These are the officials. These are the people with money. These are the people who make decisions. They create policies in, in the nation of Israel this time. They're the ones who, who are leading it all. And Nehemiah, he just gets right on them. Right on them. Amazing. Courageous act of someone coming and just saying, this is wrong. I don't care who you are, how much money you have, influence you have, how much authority you have. This is, let me lay it out for you, this is flat out wrong, and then here's what you need to do. Incredibly courageous move. And their reaction is also very, very instructive to us. Look at verse 12. They say, we will give it back. Amazing. Amazing. We, we will give it back. Like, we're not going to appeal this. We're not going to go back to court on this. We're, we're going to give it back. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. And then, Nehemiah not happy enough with that, then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. And I also shook out the folds of my robe. By the way, those robes were made in a way that they kind of created natural pockets. If you ever sit, sat with children while they're eating a meal and all the crumbs, like half of the sandwich is in the folds of their garment and they get up and it's everywhere. This is what Nehemiah just did, okay? Like all that stuff, he just kind of shook out the folds of the garment and this is what happens. He says, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. You will be like that, spread out away from the blessing of God. And so may such a man be shaken out and emptied of his possessions, of his value, of his meaning, of his connectivity to God and to this covenant community. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. It's an amazing reaction from the people who had been the most careless to the people who were the closest to them. It's an amazing reaction. Think about what happens in this story for a minute with me. If Nehemiah doesn't deal with this and bring this to resolution, the gap that had existed between the poor Jews and the rich Jews would have created a situation in which they would have been unable to move forward. They would have been unable to build the wall. They would have been unable to figure out a way to play nice together because the relational gap was too wide and the pain was too deep and they would not have been able to work together. In fact, it came up to the surface so far that the men and the women raised this outcry and brought a legal charge against people who were offending and abusing them. And if Nehemiah doesn't deal with this, 
honestly, the whole future of the nation of Israel in this moment is changed and different. If this gap in the relationship is not reduced and brought down. And so this is why I say, this is why I say, it's easy to be careless with the closest. It's easy for all of us to be most careless with the people who are most closest to us. It, the reason is we have a reason to do that. Like we're justified in why it's hard to be gracious to our in-laws. It's easy to be unforgiving toward our roommate. It's easy when our teammate who misses the foul shot when the game is on the line, you look at them and say, if you only you would practice your foul shot, you never practice it. Everyone else is in the gym at the same time and you're just sitting there on the sideline. You're not doing your work. You're not putting in the time. And in the moment, you don't deliver because you didn't prepare. We can be the most careless with the people who are closest to us, to our teammates, to our friends, to our family, people we go to church with, people we work with. It's easy to be most careless. And here's where this also goes. Not only is it easy to be the most careless with the closest, also this is true, that the closer the relationship should be, the more painful it is when it isn't. The closer the relationship should be, the more painful it is when it isn't. The more painful the relationship is when it isn't. If you're supposed to have a great relationship with mom or dad, and for whatever reason, that is a distant relationship. You know this and I know this. It is a painful reality to work your way out of a difficult relationship with mom or dad. If you have a relationship with someone who was a coach who was tight with you and somehow they use their authority to abuse you in one way, shape, and form, it is difficult and painful to work your way through that process. The closer relationship should be, the more painful it is when it isn't. And this is why it is very difficult to close the relational gap, particularly for people who are close to us. The closer a marriage should be, the harder it is to close the gap when the space is extended. And even in the nation of Israel, the closer the relationship should be from one Jew to the next, the harder it is to close that gap. So here's why we say this. Closing the gap on the space that we create in our relationships is essential for moving forward. If we do not close the gaps that exist in the relationships that we have, it is difficult, if not impossible, to move forward. And I don't know if you have ever felt stuck anywhere along the line. Maybe in a marriage, maybe in your career, maybe with your classmate, maybe just thinking this job is always going to be this way. My boss is always going to be this way. And I'm always going to be this way here. This church will always be this way. This people in the church are always going to be this way. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. I'm stuck. And you go to every family gathering. You come to every worship service. You go to every day on your job. And you just think this is the way it's always going to be. And you cannot figure out how do I move forward in this relationship? How can I get the past behind me? How can we deal with the stuff that we need to deal with. And the reality is for the people in the nation of Israel, if the Jews do not figure this out, they do not move forward. The wall is not built. Forgiveness is not granted. If they cannot lay out their cry, have it dealt with, have repentance, restoration, and forgiveness, and have the gap closed. It is difficult, it is difficult to do that with the closest people to us. Now, here's something that Jesus said when he walked the planet and it's very convicting for me, but here's why I bring this up now. Because what he says is of import to us at this moment. Here's what he said. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. In simpler terms, here's what we say. To whom much is given, much is required. And here's why I have to ask myself the question. Have I been given much at all? Have I been given much? And here's where I reflect 
I've been given the incredible gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've been given this incredible gift where God sent his son Jesus to die for me so that in my sins, even while in my sins, I might have access to God the Father. This incredible, profound, deep reality. And so then I have to ask the question, if I've been given this much, this incredible gift of salvation of which I do not deserve, what right do I have to withhold incredible grace, forgiveness, patience from the people who are closest to me? What right do I have to do that? Do much is given, much is required. I have two questions for me and I hope for you too. Number one, are there any relational gaps that I'm responsible for closing? Are there any relational gaps in your world that you're responsible for closing? Whether it is the person next to you, the person uh, you live with, the person, your, your roommate, your employee, your employee, or even people in our community who you look at and you realize, they're my neighbor, for goodness sakes. They're my neighbor. And I haven't really been thoughtful about the struggles that they are having. I'm not even considering how I can serve and help them. I'm distant in my relationship. Are there any gaps that exist in relationships that you are responsible for closing? By the way, it's easier to see the gap in our story with the nation of Israel. It's easier for the poorer Jews to see the gap than it is for the richer Jews, isn't it? It's easier for the person who's being abused and who is on the receiving end of injustice to see the gap that exists and to accuse the person of that. It's absolutely easy to see that. And that's why I want to ask this question, not the other one. Not, does someone else owe me something? Is someone else supposed to close the gap? But the question of, Am I responsible to close any gap? Is there anything that I have responsibility for? And then I want to ask this final question for you. Am I being careful with the closest? Am I being careful with those closest to me? The people who are closest to me in my church, in my home, whom I live with, whom I go to school with, who I work with, and who live in the community around me. The people who I'm the closest to, like these Jews working on this project together. Am I most careful? most thoughtful, most proactive in my love for the people who are closest to me? Or am I, like many of us, sometimes careless to the closest because it's too easy to justify, because I know too much of what goes on behind the scenes? Nehemiah was an incredible leader. He gave us some incredible examples to follow. And in this one, he lays out for us. We've got to deal with these things that stop us, that are roadblocks, that impede progress relationally, organizationally, and on the mission of the church so that we can keep moving forward together. Next week, he takes us to another string of oppositions that he deals with and helps us see another profound truth that will help all of us know who we are and who God is. We'd love to see you back next week. We pray with you this morning. Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into this book of Nehemiah and the chance to be in this section of Scripture this morning. And I pray that you would take what has been said and processed this morning and allow us to engage in that in a way that is helpful for us and brings glory and honor to you. I pray that you would give us courage to see where we need to 
if we have been careless or thoughtless in relationships that we have, if we've been too easy to judge, too quick to manipulate, too thoughtless in our employer uh, relations with our employees, maybe not as considerate as we should be to our employees and how they work and what they do, if we haven't been as um, careful to sense what is happening with our neighbors around us or even why our family members act the way that they do or why in the world our roommates leave things the way that they do. In all of these relationships that build up over time, Father, I pray that you would help this story in this moment in the history of the nation of Israel to be a reminder to us, instructive to us, not to allow these things to build and extend, but to be as careful and as loving as we can with those who are closest to us and know that that is a very, very difficult thing to do. So I pray that you give us courage, give us a humility of heart and mind to see where we have any responsibility in this process. We thank you that you are a kind, gentle, forgiving God who sets us free through our brokenness that your glory may be seen through us so that in our own failings, the good news of the gospel, the good hope that Jesus brings to all of us can be seen through our own struggles. So as we struggle together in this journey, help us to see again the good hope, the good news that you bring to us through the person of Jesus Christ. We love you. We thank you for the time we can share this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.